Hi, this is Joy Brand. Welcome to episode 43 of the Axiom Podcast. We're going to be talking about chapter 7 in the book that I wrote last year called Grow With Purpose. And in this book, I try to break down some of the housekeeping items that companies really need to take care of before they're going to be in a position to really start strategic uh, execution, strategic planning and execution. And in Chapter 7, we're talking about some of the kind of brass tacks, uh, time management, and just uh, kind of environmental management stuff that goes on in a professional work environment. And so you'll, you'll listen to the chapter, and then I'll come back and we'll talk about it a little bit more. Chapter 7, Get Out of the Way. Todd runs a company that manages manufactured home communities. This includes keeping the books for each community and preparing a detailed set of financial statements for the board of directors each month. Todd's goal was to deliver financial statements to the communities by the 21st of each month. But it was rare for that to happen, and Todd's team wanted to improve their turnaround time. In our interviews with the accountants responsible for doing all of the work, we learned that they were called upon to perform a variety of non-accounting tasks during the day. Things like covering the front desk, answering phones, and dealing with high-maintenance customers. As a result, they rarely had a quiet moment. This was not a situation conducive to focused, efficient accounting work. We implemented several changes with Todd's team, but when we came back a month later to check on progress, there was one change that everyone was talking about. We had given the accountants red signs to hang on their door that read, Close door time. I'm working on something important and will be available later today. Thank you for understanding. They had been using these signs to limit interruptions and were already realizing significant improvements in the turnaround time on their monthly financial statement packages. In fact, they were delivering packages by target date each month and the team was making significant progress toward the new goal of delivering all packages within seven days of month end. What we did with Todd's team was introduce a common language of time and task management. That language created an environment where clear and concise communication about needs and expectations became part of the culture. If your team is going to expand beyond your own abilities, this common language is essential. It doesn't matter whether the team is two people or 200. Their time and task management habits will drive or cripple the growth of your company. Planning or execution? Pick one. The first step in understanding why we need a good system for time and task management is understanding how your brain works. It can only do one thing at a time. It can work on planning or it can work on execution. You have to pick one or the other. As kids, we used to dare one another to flip the switch on the ceiling fan, not the on-off switch, the other one right next to the blades that control which direction the fan is spinning. If you got it right, the fan would slowly stop, reverse direction, and start picking up speed going the opposite way. If you got it wrong, you might lose a finger. Your brain works the same way as that ceiling fan. When the switch is in one position, your brain is in planning mode. When it is in the other position, it is in execution mode. You can only do one at a time. You can plan or you can execute. In planning mode, things start off slow as you sort through all the options and consider what things you could do. As you pick up speed, it becomes easier to think prospectively and to consider things like, if we want X result, we need Y and Z to happen first. 
At full speed, you are able to see all kinds of options and opportunities. But then you flip the switch over to execution mode and the fan slows down. It eventually stops and starts going the other way. Things start off just as slowly. You struggle to get traction and gain any momentum. It seems like it's taking too long to get stuff done. But after a while, you are taking things off the list and seeing the results of your hard work. You feel productive and accomplished. When we think about how we spend our time, we need to deliberately choose planning mode or execution mode. And we need to stay in a mode long enough for the fan to get up to full speed. People without a plan are stuck, constantly flipping the switch back and forth. They finish one task in execution mode, then go back into planning mode to decide what to do next. Then they switch back to execution mode to get things done, then back to planning mode to decide what to do next. They never get up to speed, and both their planning and their execution suffer. In this chapter, we are going to deal primarily with planning and execution on a daily and weekly basis, but the same lessons hold true for monthly, quarterly, and annual planning and execution cycles. Effective planning and execution. When it comes to planning and execution, there are several best practices that can help you get the fan up to full speed. This is not meant to be a comprehensive resource, but rather a practical one. With just a handful of basic principles, you can enjoy the freedom to experiment with different systems until you find the one that works for you. These best practices will provide the common language of time and task management your team needs to be most effective. Planning best practices. Number one, keep a to-do list. Number two, block your time. Number three, make a short list. Execution best practices. Number one, keep the plan in front of you. Number two, stay put. Number three, expect interruption. And number four, close the door. And communication best practices. Number one, ask with intent. Number two, be explicit. Number three, bring your list. And number four, keep a calendar. We're going to go through these in order. Effective planning and keeping a to-do list. A to-do list is a necessity because you need to put all those planning thoughts somewhere so that they won't be forgotten. The king of to-do lists and productivity for the last 20 years is probably David Allen, whose getting things done system has developed a cult-like following. Allen's basic premise is that you need to get all of that stuff out of your head so that you can free up mental capacity to get things done instead of wasting all that energy trying to remember what you have to do. Allen's book is an excellent resource, but it isn't the only approach. I don't care what method you use for keeping your list as long as you follow two simple rules. Number one, everything must be written down, and number two, it must be written down in the same place every time. Writing commitments down is important because if it's only in your head, you can forget it. Your fellow team members need to have confidence that if your memory fails, something important isn't going to slip through the cracks. Hear this. If you are not willing to write down the things that you have committed to, you are letting your team down. If you think you can remember everything, you're being prideful. If you can't be bothered to write stuff down, you're being lazy. Your team will have more faith in you as a leader if they know you take commitments seriously enough to write them down. Keeping everything in the same place is just as important. 
If your list is on a note card today, in your planner tomorrow, and on your smartphone a week from now, something important is going to fall through the cracks. You can switch systems over time, but those changes need to be deliberate. If you write things down on paper, keep everything on that paper. If you use an app on your phone, put everything in that app. If your company uses a team-wide platform, resist the urge to have separate lists somewhere else. Put everything in one place so that you know where to go to review your commitments. Blocking your time. Time blocking is all about getting the fan up to full speed. When you do your planning, set aside enough time to really think through your important priorities for the day, week, month, quarter, and year. Then organize your calendar to get 90 to 120 minute blocks of time when you can go head down without interruption and work on important projects. One of the best ways to make sure you have the opportunity to time block is to set appointments with yourself ahead of time. If I have a particularly important project deadline, I will make sure that I have several two to three hour blocks of time set aside on the calendar in the days or weeks leading up to the deadline. Everyone knows not to schedule appointments during these times. With time blocking, you must take a proactive approach. If you have any level of responsibility in your organization, your calendar will be filled by others. Set aside the time you need to get your most important work done while leaving some time blocks open and available for others. Don't let everyone else fill up your days and weeks with less important, albeit urgent, matters. Making a short list. The short list is where planning mode meets your to-do list. While your to-do list may contain hundreds or even dozens of items, there is no way for you to address all of them at once. Without a system for prioritizing what you can and should get done today, you'll become paralyzed and default to putting out urgent fires. One of the best habits any leader can develop is creating a short list of the most important tasks for the day. You can also do this for your week, but daily is usually a first step. By limiting yourself to just three to six items, you will have more focus and purpose during the day, and you'll be more aware of your tendency to address urgent matters on your list rather than the non-urgent but more important projects. When we get business owners to start with a short list every day, two things happen. First, they realize just how much of their day is spent on things that they did not choose to spend time on. Managers and employees have a never-ending list of problems, issues, decisions, and opportunities that require your input. And customers have a never-ending list of requests, fires, complaints, reorders, special orders, and two-second conversations they want to have. That's all before you have taken a single call from a salesperson or a vendor. When you start with a short list, these demands on your time become way more obvious and you realize just how much you are at everyone else's mercy when you start without a clear sense of direction every day. The second thing business owners realize is that they will never get to the most important things on their list without some serious effort. It takes an ability to push minor and urgent decisions down the chain of command to free up significant time for non-urgent and important long-term focus. Urgent things still have to get done, but good leaders come to realize that doing urgent tasks is rarely their highest and best use. The short list is where most business owners and teams either fall off the rails or realize huge improvements in productivity and effectiveness. 
If you can keep the list to your top three priorities, you are putting yourself in a position to say no to other important but urgent tasks. Be realistic about what you can get done. Each month has about 20 working days. At three important tasks a day, that's at least 60 high-value tasks that you can accomplish in a month. Few business owners think they have the time to get 60 major tasks completed in a month, but they walk around every day with a to-do list that has dozens of have-to items they never accomplish. Less is more. Limit yourself to three must-do items every day. Your progress over the course of a month will be staggering. Effective execution. Now, let's flip the ceiling fan switch. Just as there are best practices for planning, there are similar things you should be doing every day on the execution side. Let us assume you are keeping a to-do list, that you have blocked out enough time to get up some momentum, and that you have three items on your must-do list for the day. How do you get it done so you can go home feeling like you have done your best work? Number one, keep the plan in front of you. I am a technology and gadget nut, but when it comes to my plan, I like tangible things I can reach out and touch, pick up, put in my pocket, and lay down in plain sight. Once you enter execution mode, your plan needs to be front and center where you can't ignore it. It might be an index card with your shortlist. It might be a planner page that has your schedule and shortlist written out next to one another. It might be a sticky note. Whatever it is, don't enter execution mode without the plan in front of you where you can see it. It is important to have the plan in front of you because you will get interrupted. You will get distracted. You will have things come up that tempt you to spend the afternoon putting out a fire or entertaining a drop-in guest. One glance at the plan and you will see these for what they are, tempting distractions. What seems like an urgent fire to put out will become something you can delegate to someone on your team. It is often said that to say no, you need to have a more compelling yes. The plan is your compelling yes, and it will empower you to say no more often. Number two, stay put. Once the switch is flipped, let it stay on execution. Resist the urge to do a midday review of your entire to-do list. Don't get sucked in to pulling up your calendar and doing a bunch of time blocking for the next two weeks. Don't start grouping and reorganizing project folders. Remember, once in execution mode, your brain is spinning in a certain direction. It is in the here and now, not the prospective world of planning. Stay with it, and don't go back to planning mode until you can tick off all the items on your short list. Even then, you should probably stay head down, knocking other items off your longer would-like-to-do list. The hardest time to stay in execution is at the beginning of a task, and especially at the very beginning of your first task of the day. Recognize that you are getting the fan up to speed. Push through and stay with the task no matter how hard it seems. At these times, it's much easier to slip back into planning mode under the pretense of working smarter, not harder. However, there is a place for this. I call it micro-planning, and it can overcome some of the friction of starting on a new project. If you have set aside a couple of hours to work on a bigger project, take two or three minutes to think through the steps and develop a mini-plan of attack. Then, once you start, don't turn back. 
Eventually, the fan will get up and running, and the momentum will carry you through to completion. Expect interruptions. You will get derailed. Part of being great at execution is being able to put your work aside for a moment, then pick up where you left off with a minimal loss of momentum. When you have the plan in front of you, it becomes much easier to address the unexpected interruptions. That plan becomes the anchor that keeps you from drifting too far off course. It allows you to set things aside and be fully present with those who legitimately need to interrupt you. The plan sitting there in front of you creates an urgency to handle the interruption as quickly as possible. And once done, it tells you where to jump in to stay on course. One of the consistent pieces of pushback I get from business owners is that there's no way they can anticipate everything that's going to happen during the day and plan for it. And that is exactly my point. There's a part of the day we can plan, and there's a part of the day we can't. Understand that, and use the plan as a tool to get back on track after interruptions. Don't get frustrated. Close the door. I make no apologies for the fact that I think an open-door policy is a terrible idea. It is often trumpeted as an integral part of the company's culture. I hear managers and owners brag, and we have an open-door policy around here, like it's on par with a 401k plan or a major reason people come to work there. We might as well celebrate water cooler gossip and 20-minute smoke breaks. They all have the same effect on productivity and effectiveness. In any serious company, everyone needs closed-door time. It doesn't matter if you are in leadership or production. Uninterrupted time to focus on important tasks and projects is essential if your team is to work effectively. Every time I see the bookkeeper in a company covering the phones, I cringe. Do you really want the person doing payroll to get interrupted 10 times an hour? Business owners fight me on this consistently, but the ones who take me up on it quickly become believers. Here are some ground rules to make closed-door time work for your company. First, closed-door time should be explicit. Make a big red sign and hang it on your door. Seriously, this is no time for subtlety. Build a common language to explicitly communicate closed-door time and use it. Number two, closed-door time should be coordinated. Someone needs to be available to handle phones, emergencies, interruptions, and so on. Let your people work together to set up closed-door time for each other so that they can cover one another and serve each other. Number three, closed-door time should be limited. It only works if people know you are going to come up for air at some point and become available again. The person who leaves the closed-door sign up all the time can expect constant interruptions as people become immune and ignore it. And finally, closed-door time has to be respected. If everyone pays attention to the sign except the boss, it's no good. It only takes one person breaking the rules to sacrifice all the benefits of closed-door time. Effective communication. One of the reasons we address time and task management at the team level is that without a common language, it is impossible to communicate needs and expectations clearly. Everyone can have their own individual systems, but at some point, they have to come together and function as a team. Here are some basic principles that foster clear communication at the team level. Ask with intent. 
Before asking someone to get or do something for you, consider whether you can get it yourself. If you can't get it yourself, is it so important that you need to interrupt what that person is doing right now? Often, we go to others because we are either lazy or impatient or we have procrastinated too long. Waiting until the last minute is a major reason we need someone to do something for us now. Don't be lazy. Get it yourself. Wait for it or plan ahead next time. Be explicit. Remove ASAP from the company vocabulary. It is too subjective. Your ASAP and mine are almost certainly different. This is especially true with email. Make a habit of indicating your needed time frame in the subject line of the email. It is very easy to communicate need this morning, need this afternoon, need in one day, need in one week. Don't make team members guess. Remember, your pressing need is usually the result of procrastination and lack of planning. Bring your list. Team members who show up to meetings without their to-do list should be sent back to get it. If commitments are going to be made, those responsible for them need to write them down. It is pointless to have a meeting, make decisions about what needs to get done, and then risk that something is going to fall through the cracks. If people can't be troubled to bring their lists, they don't take their commitments seriously. If they don't take their commitments seriously, they don't deserve a seat at the table. Keep a calendar. Meetings and appointments go on the calendar, period. And the first rule of keeping a calendar is to have only one. Keeping one calendar on your phone and one on paper is a recipe for disaster. But regardless of the method or technology, Everyone is responsible for keeping their company calendar and hard commitments. No excuses. People who don't keep a calendar miss meetings and waste everyone's time. How to be taken seriously. Jerry was a sales manager at one of our clients. Every time we would meet with the team, the other four managers in the room made a habit of bringing their to-do lists, including follow-up items from our last meeting. But not Jerry. Jerry would show up empty-handed and offer insights into whatever issues were being discussed. But when we went around the room to follow up on prior commitments, he could rarely report any progress. John was the controller for the company and a meticulous note-taker. One day, I noticed that John would write down both the things he was committing to and the commitments of his fellow managers. But he stopped writing whenever Jerry would make commitments. He had so little faith that Jerry would follow through, that it wasn't even worth his time to write it down. I began to notice that no one really took Jerry's commitment seriously, and they didn't acknowledge any of the points he made when we were discussing strategy or basic business issues. About a year later, Jerry was fired. There wasn't any one issue or event that led to his dismissal. There was just a sense that he wasn't up to the caliber of his fellow managers. Failure to master time and task management is ultimately a failure to live up to your commitments. Over time, it eats away at your effectiveness and your credibility. In a manager, that can be a major setback to growth. In a leader, it is a fatal flaw. Decide today that you and your team will make time and task management a core competency in your company. So how many people just get super frustrated because literally 
the boss is the, the biggest impediment to their production, their performance, their productivity. We see this a lot, and, and I don't think that it's intentional. I don't think the boss is set out to make everybody around them less productive, but we see it so often that it, it just it highlights the fact that bosses a lot of times just aren't cognizant of how much their activities impede the performance of people around them. And one of the things that we, we talk to business owners about is that when you go into somebody's office uh, and, and you ask for something, you might as well have a bullhorn or a megaphone in front of your mouth when you do that. Because when you ask for things as the boss, as the owner, it gets heard differently than if anybody else asks for it. And you may just casually say, hey, uh, you know, I, I, could you get this report for me? Well, for that person at that time, their perception could be that their very job depends on them dropping everything and turning around and getting this report out the door. Now, you know as the boss that's not the case, but because you just failed to simply stop and say, hey, uh, what else are you working on? What do, you, what do you have on your plate this morning? What do you have on your plate today? Or what do your priorities look like this week? And then you get a sense for, you know, hey, they're doing payroll today. <laughs> like, that's super important. You don't want to slow that down. So you might say, uh, I, there's this report I was hoping that you could run, but that comes after payroll. Don't worry about that until after payroll's all done. And then, you know, feel free if something super pressing comes up, just give me a call and let me know. If it's tomorrow, that's probably okay too. But just check in with me by the by the say middle of the day, once payroll's done, and let me know if it's possible to get that today. Um, and and we go through some of that in this chapter, but the reason that I I start kind of the commentary on the chapter with that is that the tone, as with almost everything that happens in your organization, the tone for productivity, the tone for kind of being respectful of other people's time. The tone for work ethic, it really does come from the top. People are always watching. If you're the boss, uh, and we, we went over this in a previous chapter where leadership really has no boundaries, you, there's no silos, you don't get to turn it on and turn it off and say, I can be a jerk here and be considered a, a brilliant business owner over here. The same thing happens with just your work habits and, and how you prioritize your time, how you train other people to respect your time, how you uh, ask for stuff uh, will be mimicked by other people. Like if you're if you're in the habit of just marching into people's office and saying, I need this now, don't be surprised if a lot of your direct reports, the people who work uh, underneath you and get to see you the most, they start to mimic that same activity. So we want to be, um, we want ownership. I guess that's the biggest thing. We want owner. We want the business owners to own not just the business, but the fact that what they do in the business matters a great deal more than what anybody else does. In the, the way they treat people matters a great deal more than the way anybody else in the business treats people because it, it has this kind of cascading effect where people take their cues from you. So if you have a lackadaisical attitude about being prepared to come in and do your work. If you have a lackadaisical attitude about this distinction between planning and execution, and you're constantly turning that ceiling fan on and off, and you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off, and you have you have no closed door time, you don't keep a list, um, 
all of those things, you don't have a plan in front of you during the day so that you're intentional about where you're spending your time and what your priorities are. If you're not doing any of those things, but you expect everybody else who works for you to do those things, because if they do those things, it's going to make your company better. You're going to be very disappointed. And um, business owners, you know, there's there are a couple of reasons I think that some of these bad habits creep in. Number one, when you own the business, you start off typically like in the early days, you're doing literally everything. You're you're selling, you're fulfilling orders, you're keeping the books, you're cleaning the physical space, you're sweeping the warehouse, you're cleaning bathrooms on weekends, you're you're uh, striping the parking lot. I mean, I've seen it all and I've done a lot of it. And then as your business grows, like the smart thing that you have to do is you have to start letting go of some of that stuff. And there's this little thing that happens the first couple of times you do this, the first couple of times you do let go of stuff, you're like, man, it's really nice not to have to do that stuff anymore. It's really nice to be able to hire somebody to do the books. And I don't have to, I hated doing the books. I hated reconciling the, the bank statement. I hated entering payables. I hated tracking down open accounts receivable. And it's so nice to be able to hand stuff like that off. And then you you hire maybe your first like office administrator. And now you no longer have to deal with anything that has to do with facilities. You don't have to worry about dealing with the landlord. You don't have to worry about uh, when the time clock you know goes down. You don't have to worry about IT because somebody's calling to get the IT person in there when things break. You're like, man, that's really nice. I don't have to worry about that. And then over time, as cash flow improves, what I have seen is that business owners are more than more than willing to trade cash to get out of stuff they don't like to do. And so we will hire people to, I mean, in, in, in some cases, we've seen people that will hire people to kind of take care of even some of their home responsibilities where, you know, I've got a nanny who's working part-time in the business, but they're also picking my kids up from school five days a week. And I've got a person who's uh, cleaning the office on the weekends, but they're also coming and cleaning my house one, one day a week uh, when I'm not there. And that can very quickly kind of transition into a mindset of, I've got enough cash flow that I can just pay people to do all the stuff that I don't want to do. And for a lot of business owners, things like being intentional about planning your day and keeping priorities and keeping lists, that's, you know, they're entrepreneurs. They're moving 100 miles an hour. They don't like to get into the nitty-gritty details. They don't like to have to keep track of things. Not not all, not all, but I'm, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing here. But I'm telling you that a lot of the... the um, the the symptoms that we see in a business of business owners like constantly interrupting people, business owners asking for stuff and not being clear about when they need it, business owners not keeping lists and expecting other people to keep lists, those are symptoms of kind of a disease that has crept in where it's like, I'll just pay people to do all the things that I find unsavory. And we have to back up from there and we have to get business owners to realize that, listen, be, being a business owner, yes, the luxury of it is that as cash flow improves, you do get to pay people to do things that they are better at doing than you are. And that should mean that you spend more and more time in your highest and best use areas. But even in those highest and best use areas, 
there are some kind of operating systems, if you will. There are some fundamental uh, elements of being productive that you can't delegate to people. Just because you don't like to keep a list doesn't mean that you can delegate the, the keeping of your list to everybody else and just be like, well, when we're in a meeting and somebody says that this or that or such and such needs to get done and it lands on my plate, I'm going to trust that somebody else is going to remind me of that later. I'm going to trust that at some point, you know, if I'm going to, I'm going to remember it. I'm, I'll probably remember it. But if I don't, you know, my employees are here. The, one of the reasons they're here is to backstop me and make sure that this stuff doesn't fall through the cracks. And and that may be, I mean, there there's, I mean, there might be a, a, a situation where that's true. But going back to the very first point I, ma- I made, what they don't realize is that the employees are watching that kind of attitude, and then the employees are adopting that attitude. So, and it's kind of like if the attitude that you have, you have to assume that whatever attitude you have as the leader is going to infect everybody else around you. So if your attitude is, I shouldn't have to keep track of my things, then that's going to infect everybody. And it's actually much more likely that they won't be able to remind you when things fall through the cracks. They're not going to be tracking your to-dos and priorities and and making sure that you're always on the up and up and that you've, you've got your task list uh, squared away because they're not keeping a task list at all because you're not keeping a task list at all. So I don't want to beat a dead horse, but as with so many things in business, like I said, you got to set the example at the leadership level. I do want to kind of spend a, a couple minutes going through some of these things that we talked about. Uh, and just kind of tell you, you know, how these come up in my day-to-day practice. I've, I have probably experimented with just about every gadget and system and list and uh, to-do management and workflow management and, you know, iPhone, iPad, uh, all that stuff. Tablet computers. I was an early adopter of tablet computers. And... I, I like all the technology. The technology is great, but I'm also a very tactical, a very tactile person. Where I, I like pen and paper for whatever reason. I just I like fountain pens. I like nice paper. I like taking notes longhand. Um, so I, I've experimented with a lot of stuff, and I keep coming back to a, a really nice journal uh, that I've kind of a journal um, A4 journal type that I have with a nice leather cover. And I can't keep coming back to those and just refilling those and using them over and over again. But recently, I have started using kind of the latest fad of the day. It's this, a new tablet called the Remarkable. Uh, it's the Remarkable 2. It's an e-ink display. And I still keep my notes in there. I put my daily plan in there. I try to come up with a plan every day where I actually go through and I'll draw a line down the right-hand side of the page, you know, a couple inches in from the, the right-hand margin. And I will put, I'll start my, um, every line on that page gets an hour next to it starting at 4 a.m. I usually get up around 4.30 a.m. if I'm going to the gym. And so 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m., all the way down to about 10 o'clock at night. And it really helps me. I like pictures. 
Uh, so it helps me to kind of visually see my day. And so if I've got a three-hour meeting, that's going to take up three of those rows on that lined piece of paper because it's you know each row is basically an hour. And that visually just helps me understand, okay, like here's where the biggest chunks of my time are going to be. And if I look at a day that's got two or three large chunks, that's you know that's either I'm I'm in meetings, you know, big long meetings during that day with probably with clients. Uh, or potentially I have uh, uh, some time in the office that day where I'm working on bigger projects. More often it's chopped up into little bits and pieces. Um, and what I'm looking for when I start my day that way and I'm trying to put together my plan, I'm looking for the white space. So you know, I'll go in and I'll fill in all of my hard, dedicated commitments where I have to be a certain place at a certain time. And if that's out of the office, you know, out and about, then I'll also uh, block out the travel time that I'm going to have to spend getting to or from different places. And then I stand back and I look, how much white space do I have? And I'll I'll tell you, on most days, uh, Tuesday through Thursday, those are days that are kind of dedicated for client meetings and business development. On Tuesdays through Thursdays, um, it's rare that there's more than you know, an hour or two of white space. And if there's two hours of white space, it's broken up into, you know, several, you know, 15, 30 minute chunks between meetings. So I don't get a lot of contiguous white space on my calendar outside of Mondays and Fridays. Mondays are set aside uh, for our team days. So those are days, we call them office hours days. Kind of if you go back to your your college days when your professors would have office hours, that's when you knew they were going to be in the office. And for me, Monday is office hours. Uh, I'm going to be in the office uh, as much as possible, hopefully all day Monday, maybe a quick trip out for lunch. But that's when we have our team meetings on Monday mornings, and Monday afternoons uh, typically are just available for phone calls uh, or Zoom calls or, or what have you, where I can, um, my assistant can book those up and if people need to get in touch with me or they need a quick call or they need something like that, she'll try to push those to Monday afternoons as much as possible. And then on Fridays, those are really set aside for team development. We also do podcast recordings on Fridays. But those are the days when I do my one-on-ones with my direct reports, and I try to give them as much time as I possibly can, two to three hours minimum, uh, where we spend time talking about what's important to them. It's their agenda, and I'm just trying to make myself available as their leader to make sure they have the tools and the resources that they need to be successful. So it's their opportunity to tell me, you know, what those things are and and also, it's, it's my opportunity just to press a little bit deeper about their personal and professional goals and how I can play a part in that. And then, you know, we're off to the races. So once I have the plan built for the day, it's going in that, that e-ink tablet or in the journal. You know, I, something tells me that eventually I'm going to go back to pen and paper because that always seems to, to be the way. Uh, and then we have another system. Uh, we use a CRM system called Copper. Uh, we've used we've used a ton of them over the years. We've used Workist, we've used Trello, we've used uh, I can't remember all the ones we used. We've all the way back to Microsoft Dynamics CRM uh, back in the day, um, Goldmine. I mean, all of them. So anyway, we've used uh, you know we we have that for the firm and any to dos that I have or projects that are business related, they kind of go, they, I try to get them in there. I'm not as good about going back and reviewing that as much as I, I should. Um, but at this point, you know, we talk about like highest and best use, my highest and best use in the firm is not actually 
uh, getting the work done. It's not actually building spreadsheets. So, you know, as we take to-do items out of meetings, hopefully there's somebody I can hand that off to. It's not to say that I don't spend a lot of time doing that kind of stuff, but it's not where I need to spend most of my time. <clears throat> most of my time should be spent with clients in meetings or with prospective clients in business development. And, um, and so, you know, my task list, while, you know, it can grow to be pretty big, there are lots of people willing to pitch in and help me get through that. But it's my job, it's my responsibility to make sure that nothing falls through the cracks with any of these clients. So I try to practice what I preach, but in full transparency, um, you know, I'm, I don't look at my list, uh, my large list as much as I should, but I definitely spend every day with a plan in front of me. That has become so important and such a, a habit that when I don't do it, and there are days when it doesn't happen, they tend to be days that start early in the morning with a meeting and, and there's just going to be meetings, meetings, meetings. And I can basically look at my, my calendar on my phone and that is the plan for the day. There is literally no white space and nothing that I need to be worried about trying to get done because every minute of that day is spoken for. It doesn't mean that I don't still feel a little bit discombobulated because we all know that even when you have those times when every moment is spoken for during the day, there's still stuff that came in the email yesterday or last night that you know you're going to have to attend to. And so, again, starting the day with a plan, uh, it, so that let's say that meeting starts at 8.30. If I can sit down at my desk at 8 or 7.45 and I can kind of, you know, clear out the inbox from the previous day. I can make a list of, you know, I need to make sure, you know, during a break, I need to get on Slack with my assistant or I need to send her a quick message that says, you know, can you respond back to this person? Or so-and-so is asking for a meeting on this day that's probably not going to work. Can you figure something else out? Um, I feel much better and I'm much more grounded in those meetings when I have a chance to start the day and work out the plan. Even if I know there's no white space in it during that day, I have a team behind me that's willing to help take some of that stuff off my plate. Uh, it, I just have to let them know. If I don't speak up, then it's possible that that stuff could just sit there for 24 or 48 hours and not get addressed. And the whole time it's in the back of my head chirping away because I know it's got to get done, but there's nobody really helping out with it. Um, as far as closed door time goes, uh, I think one of the everybody kind of gets the idea of of closed door time. Um, I I wonder though, you know, there are some. So we use a tool. I mean, I, I'm going to digress for stuff. We use a tool. It's kind of similar to Disc, Myers Briggs, Enneagram. You know, these, these kind of personality profile assessment type things. And we use this tool. It's called Reach. Uh, we really like it. I, I'm, I'm not one of those people who gets dogmatic about which tool you use, but for me it really helps to kind of understand one tool as thoroughly as possible. Uh, so this is the one that we picked, um, and I try to learn as much as I can about it. But in this, in, in this tool that we use called Reach, it basically... Um, it, it plots your achievement drive. So, you know, are, one, are you one of those people who's much more um, kind of like, I, I got to get 
uh, all the boxes ticked or am I more of a big picture thinking? So like, what is my achievement orientation? How achievement driven am I? Like if you're one of those people who, if you go home at the end of the day and you haven't ticked every single thing off your list, like it's been a miserable day. Then you have a very high achievement drive. If you're one of those people who can kind of just roll with the punches and eh, it gets done, it doesn't get done. You know, there are more important things in life. You know, well, it'll be there tomorrow. You have a lower achievement drive. Uh, and then it, it also rates your relational drive. So to what sense, in what sense are you more task oriented where you just want to put your head down and get the work done and it, versus being much more relationally oriented? So what's your relational drive? Are you one of those people who hates to work alone and you just really like to be um, in, in a group and collaborating and have people around you? And so what we find with closed door time is that those people who are highly relational, um, they are, you know, for them, closed door time, it's not, it's not really that, I don't want to say it's not that important. They still need the closed door time. But for them, closing that door, it actually costs them something. For them, closing the door is difficult. They know they need to do it to get the work done. But at the same time, they're like, I wonder what's going on out there. I need my people. I want to be, I want to be in the mix. I want to know what's happening. For the people who don't have a high relational drive, like closing the door is very easy. For the people who have a now, so that's kind of on the relational spectrum. From the people on the achievement drive side, like they're I, I find them to be kind of agnostic whether the door is open or closed. The drivers, the people who are high, high achievement drive. Like they'll close the door if it means that they can get the stuff on their list done. But if the door's open, because of their high achievement drive, they're just as capable of, of just ignoring you altogether to get their list done. But the fact that the door's open or closed, yeah, I mean, it might help if it's closed, but I'm still going to get the stuff done and I'm not going to pay you a bit of attention whatsoever. The people who don't have a high achievement drive, they kind of need the door to be closed because they do need to kind of set up the space and get focused. And, you know, for them, it's like, I just, you know, I'm trying to make sure that I do this thoroughly. I'm trying to make sure that I don't miss anything. And for, so for them, a lot of times closing the door is about avoiding mistakes. So we have to recognize, and we run this personality profile on all of our clients and all the leadership team members on our clients so that we have a good understanding of you know, how they're wired and where they're, where they're, um, what things are going to be easy for them and what things might be a little bit of a stretch. And with closed door time, what we find is that the people who have a low achievement drive and a low relational drive, those people we call advisors, the ones that are super thorough, they tend to, you know, like the stereotypically, they might be the ones who work in the accounting department or the legal department. They're the engineers. Um, they're the ones who don't miss a thing. They can be trusted with almost any task, but you know, it, it might take a while. They're not, they're going to take their time. They're not just going to rush it through to get it done. They have no problem closing the door, but that does create problems for everybody else. And it, eventually it even creates problems with them because they close the door. Once we give them permission, they close the door so often that people begin to ignore it. And they just think, well, you know, they're never going to come, come back up for air and I'm never going to have access to them. So I don't have a choice but to interrupt them. So that's something that you have to be aware of too, if that describes you. If you're one of those kind of conscientious, thorough people, you don't really care much about the water cooler talk. 
um, you know, you, you could get this thing done today or tomorrow, the next day, it, however long it takes, it takes, it just needs to be done right. You're one of those kind of advisor folks, then be cognizant of that and don't keep the door closed so much that people start to ignore it because it'll work against you. For the people who have a high achievement drive and a low relational drive, those people that we call our drivers, they're the ones who, you know, they will go through a brick wall and they don't care who they run over on the way to get there. The important thing is getting to the other side of the wall. For them, like I said, whether the door stays open or closed, you know, they're they're perfectly capable of putting on the earmuffs or, or just tuning you out altogether and getting the thing done. Um, for them, you need the closed. I, I would encourage that group to get use the closed door time to avoid kind of sending the wrong signals to people. You know, it's, it helps them to see your door closed and know that you're working on something important as opposed to you leave the door open or you're working in the common space and you're just tuning everybody out or you're short with people because you're trying to get back to the list. It's much easier to send kind of the message with a closed door time and a, and a sign on the outside that says, hey, I'm working on something really important. I'm, you know, I'll be back up for air in an hour or so. For those people who are the, the folks we call our counselors, they, they don't have necessarily the high achievement drive, but they have a very high relational drive. Um, these are the people who, they're just people people. They're, they're the folks that people go to when they have problems. They tend to make uh, good managers because they've always got time for folks. They're not just pushing, pushing, pushing to get over a goal or a deadline. They'll actually, they've got time to stop and listen and understand what's happening. Mediators, negotiators, folks like that often play this role. Obviously, counselors play this role. Uh, we've seen some HR people or our advisors uh, without the high relational drive. A lot of HR people are counselors that do have the relational drive, but they're also the people who, you know, because they're not just trying to get to the other side of the wall, they will take their time. They can be meticulous. They're not going to just skip steps one, two, and three. Um, to get to four. For them, closed door time really is an opportunity for them to take time for themselves. You know, it's easy for our counselors to get so wrapped up in feeding off everybody else that they don't spend the time on their priorities. They'd much rather be helping somebody else with their own priority because that means they get to spend time with those folks. But closing the door is a stretch for these folks because they need to uh, they need to f- focus on the things that are important, most important in their particular, you know, task list or priority list or project list. And so for that group too, uh, it can sometimes be a stretch, but it's primarily because of the the relational drive that they have. And then for our coaches, the people who want to get to the other side of the wall, high achievement drive, but also a high relational drive they tend to never be in the office. <laughs> They're the ones who are kind of out there, always out and about, kind of pushing forward, uh, trying to, to get to the other side of that wall, trying to get to step four. Uh, but they've all, they're also carrying a, a pretty good cadre of people with them uh, because they are the, they're the coaches, right? That we call them coaches for a reason. So for them, closed door time is really more about their professional development. It's about, listen, I need you to come in. I need you to close the door. I need you to think about the vision of the company and where you want to take the company. I need to think you to think about your department and what are your goals for the department over the next week, month, quarter, year. 
I need you to think about what is the role that you're playing or what could you be doing better in your job? And for the, so for them, closed door time is forcing everybody else out of the room so that I have to spend time with myself. Uh, they can't, they're very introspective um, when they get the time. A lot of times it's just the fact that closing the door helps them slow down and forget about the outside world long enough to become introspective and to get the bigger picture down on paper or to work through the projects that have to deal with the bigger picture. So how you're made, how, how God wired you, has a lot to do with how difficult or easy it is to close that door and what you get out of it. And for me, that's kind of been the... This, we don't go into it in the chapter, quite frankly, because it's something that has really been born out of the last two years' experience as we've started to understand some of the tools that we use on a day-in, day-out basis better, and we see how different uh, groups, different individuals respond to us asking them to work on 90-day priorities, because that's where this comes into the world of strategic planning and execution, which we haven't gotten to at all in the book. If you listen to the podcast, you hear us talk about strategic planning and execution all the time. But in, in terms of the book, we haven't even gotten to strategic planning and execution. And there's really only one chapter that just kind of flies 50,000 feet over the top of it in the next to last chapter. But in, in terms of where does closed door time fit in the strategic planning and execution model? Well, you know, as a group, we tend to spend a lot of our time doing the planning. But then we have to leave that, that room and the whiteboard and all the plans that we've put together. And we may be doing that on it. We're doing that definitely on an annual basis to kind of look back at the last year and look forward to the next year, the next couple of years, affirm whatever strategy we've decided we're going to focus our time and attention on as a team, as a company, um, and then set goals and, and uh, metrics that we're going to shoot for that are going to show us whether we're making progress against that strategy over the next year. So that's that's all in the planning realm, and we do that once a year. We've, we've been doing actually been we're at a time of the year right now as I'm recording this when we're doing a lot of that, and um, and so that's where that comes in play. And then the, kind of the the bigger part of execution, the the kind of um, the part that's a good chunk of planning and a good chunk of execution is getting leaders on the leadership team to set 90-day priorities. And sometimes we'll set a 90-day priority for the company as a whole and kind of have the group coalesce around that one 90-day priority and each individual figure out what are the things they need to be doing over the next 90 days to, to make that priority um, you bring that priority to fruition and their individual piece of it. And sometimes we usually do that around the first quarter of the year. And usually when we get to like quarters two, three, four, we're asking individuals, okay, in light of the sprint that we got off to and the things you've learned from that, looking at the goals that we have to accomplish for the rest of the year, what should your individual priority be for the next 90 days? Where should you be leading your team, your department in light of the overall strategy and the overall goal that the company set for the year? What's your individual 90-day priority? And that usually involves identifying you know, what the priority is and then identifying three or four milestones that are going to show them kind of progress toward that priority and then breaking those three or four milestones down into what are the next physical actions that have to take place for us to accomplish those milestones. So if you're, if you're going to redo the price book, that's your priority for the next 90 days, you know, the first the first milestone might be to uh, get updated prices on all raw materials from accounting, 
right? And so the so that's kind of the first milestone. And the first action item in that is schedule a meeting with the controller to sit down and tell them what you're looking for. And then the second action item might be follow up with the controller or the accounts payable person a week later and see if they have any questions about you know your request. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go along because I haven't done a really good job of preparing. But you get the idea. Well, the question becomes, so like, let's say that was the sales manager. The sales manager wanted to redo the price book. Well, the sales manager has 40 or more hours a week dedicated to managing sales, right? They have a full-time job just being the sales manager. And this redo the price book, that's kind of on top of that. That is, that's extra work. So let's say that that's going to take, you know, you got 40 hours worth of work during the week. Let's say we can get a little bit more, let's say we can carve some stuff out. How much time can we claw back? Let's say we, maybe we can get 90 minutes or 120 minutes a week. And that's the time that our teams spend executing the strategic plan. That's literally it. The businesses that we work with, they don't have C-suites full of executives whose only job it is, is to drive and execute the strategic plan. The folks who are building plans with us and the people who are executing them, they are operating managers. Like they've got full-time jobs. They've got production responsibilities. They've got supervisory responsibilities. They have to manage teams of people. And so we're fighting for an hour, two hours, maybe two and a half hours a week for them to work on these big projects that are going to drive the plan forward. That's where closed door time comes in. That's where we're asking them. We, we use this term so often, like this is where you're going to close your door, you're going to go head down, and you're going to work through this next action item list for this first milestone till you get it all worked out, and then you're going to move on to the second milestone, then the third milestone, then the fourth milestone. And by the time we've accomplished all four of those milestones, we should be able to stand back and go, okay, that priority is complete. And if we look, kind of stand back and look at that priority is complete, what we said earlier was that priority being complete is going to get us steps closer to the goal we have for the year, whether that's a revenue goal or an operational metric goal or market share goal or something like that. So that's where closed door time fits into all this. And the stuff about keeping lists and and starting your day with a plan, you know, that's all the keeping list part is really, really important to your leadership team meetings. And uh, the starting today with the plan is just really important for you being able to set a, not just set a good example for your team. You got to be productive, but you also want the people that work alongside you and the people that you serve who work under you, you want those people to learn good habits from you. You want them to be more productive. And even if you're a machinist working in a shop and there's a bin of parts on the left and a bin of finished parts on the right, it's really good for that machinist to start the day with a plan. Because at some point in the day, the machine's going to need to be taken care of. At some point in the day, checking with the inventory stock for tomorrow's batch to make sure that there's going to be enough parts to start, that's probably a good idea. At some point in the day, uh, you know, checking with production or with the floor manager to see if that rep from the equipment company is going to make their way back because I got some questions on how we might be able to set this machine up a little bit better. That, that stuff is important. That's the stuff that creates a fully engaged workforce, not somebody who just comes in and worries about the bin on the left and the bin on the right, and they don't start the day with the plan. So even the people in your organization, you think, man, their day is like perfectly scripted out. They don't really need a plan. It's already made for them. 
Trust me, you don't want robots. You want people who are contributing to the growth, health, success of the company. And I'm telling you, if you engage them in that way, they become much happier. They become much more productive. And and they just have a better experience knowing that you're not treating them like robots. But it starts with teaching them some of these skills that we may take for granted, but they make all the difference in the world when it comes to setting your company apart from the competition. So I hope it's been helpful. We'll come back next week. We'll talk about the next chapter. Until then, have a great week.